This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you today. Uh, I spent uh, part of my week this week in South Bend, Indiana, home of Pete Buttigieg, uh, but more importantly, the home of the University of Notre Dame, uh, where I have been consulting for them looking at a women's boxing program. They have a boxing program for men and women. Uh, the fall season is for women. Now, people are saying, wait a second, you have a boxing program? And it's an amazing program. Uh, I have been consulting regarding implementing safety measures, but they had 260 female undergraduates sign up for boxing this year in a boxing club. And that's amazing. And, you know, at first I was thinking when I first went out there, this is, this is crazy risking injury to these young women. And why do they want to do it? And I spent time with them, and this was last year and again this year, and the women all said this is an empowering event. It is, it is so empowering to be able to work out, exercise, with a large group and then learn how to spar and and fight in a ring in a tournament. Now, the tournament is only open to undergraduates and graduate students who have no other boxing experience. So it's not like somebody fought golden gloves. Uh, they're very short rounds. Uh, but it's very competitive because all of the different uh, dormitories are named. They don't have sororities and fraternities so they all compete for their for their various houses and uh, their dormitory so it's 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 a fascinating program and i always enjoy my time um out there at notre dame and uh, i really wish them the best of luck and it's just great to see everybody getting in shape staying active in a very competitive sport that could really be life-changing for folks this week, on a personal note, I had the pleasure of welcoming in my fifth grandchild. Gabriella Claire LaRosa was born uh, this week to my youngest daughter, Stephanie. Sadly, it's the same week that I lost my aunt, uh, my father's sister, at age 91. What's interesting about that is, isn't the circle of life just amazing in the sense of Here's someone who's lived 91 productive years, and at the same week, a new child is born into the family. And it really reminds us, it's a sobering event because it reminds us of the importance of living life to its fullest and to its healthiest. And that's what we're about here on Healthy Rounds. Apropos to that, the New England 61-Day Challenge is beginning. You'll remember this last year. I signed up last year. I signed up again this year. This is a program put on by Trinity Health of New England. 
St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. And it starts November 1st, goes to December 31st. And the goals are to get you to change your lifestyle because this is the time of year we put weight on and do some unhealthy things. So what they try to do is get us to increase the number of steps we're taking every day, increase our exercise, improve our sleep, work on diet, increasing the number of fruits and vegetables we eat on a daily basis, and trying to hydrate more. It's not that easy. So what they do is they the 61-day challenge is really a giant support group to help you do that. And they'll send you daily or weekly reminders of how to really be successful in the program. As I said, I did it last year and actually trimmed off some weight uh, and, and felt much better about it going into the holidays. So I recommend you to do that. If you're interested, go to Trinity Health of New England. So Trinity Health of ne.org and we'll have more information on that in in upcoming shows Uh, this day in medicine october 12 1879 dr renee larish was born dr larish was a french surgeon and he's the father father of modern vascular surgery and it's an interesting thing that he really looked at the peripheral vascular system the blood vessels and how to operate on them. Matter of fact, there's a syndrome, Larisha's syndrome, um, which is for occlusion of the distal abdominal aorta. Uh, So he really made headway into an exciting field of surgery that we often think of today uh, because it's made so many advances. A couple of things that came up also. So I have my state representative, I know this is a political channel, and and I'm not that political. But anyhow, my state representative is a fellow by the name of Bobby Gibson. I've never met this guy. But I will tell you, I've never had a representative communicate with me more. Um, he sends regular emails. They must be weekly. And not just about, hey, look what I'm doing for you kind of deal. So this week it was get your flu shot. Okay, and the importance of getting a flu shot, things that we've talked about on this program. Matter of fact, just up the road at Pro Health Physicians, they're having a drive up flu clinic uh, right on Farmington Avenue. I passed it on my way over here. Um, So you can drive up, fill out the forms, get a flu shot and be on your way. So I like that. I mean, I like the fact that we're trying to make things somewhat easier for everybody to really protect against the flu and keep everyone healthy. Today on our show, uh, we're going to have an interesting guest, Dr. Asim Vashist. Dr. Vashist is the uh, actually director of interventional cardiology. He's also the interim chief of cardiology at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. And I've been wanting to get him on the program to talk a little bit about coronary artery disease. Right, we've all been reminded of that. Okay, uh, here's Bernie out on the campaign trail, and all of a sudden, he has a heart attack. Was it a heart attack? We know he had to have a blood vessel open. We're going to find out more about what happened to Bernie Sanders, but more importantly, what happened to him, and how does that pertain to us in our individual health? The phone numbers here are eight six zero five two two nine eight four two. And 1-800-966-9842. That's 966-WTIC. 
If you prefer not to call in and be on the air, you can email me at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and my guest today is Dr. Asim Vashist. Dr. Vashist is the Director of Interventional Cardiology and the Interim Chief of Cardiology at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. Asim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tony. Glad to be here. So let's chat a little bit about coronary artery disease. But before we get to that, can you explain to our listeners what a cardiologist is, I mean, in terms of your education, and specifically, what is interventional cardiology? So cardiology is a subspecialty of internal medicine. Um, after you get trained in medical school, you complete a residency in internal medicine and then pursue a specialized fellowship in cardiology, which is approximately three years long. And then depending on your interest, you can further subspecialize either as a nuclear cardiologist, non-invasive cardiologist, electrophysiologist, um, or as an interventional cardiologist. And there are now newer subspecialties like congestive heart failure, um, which is an additional training. And by simplistic definition, cardiologists take care of disease of the heart, which not only encompass coronary artery disease, but also valvular heart disease, electrophysiological arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation, ventricular tachycardias, structural heart disease, um, like aortic valve stenosis and mitral valve regurgitations, to name a few, and heart failure, as I stated. So it encompasses the broader um, specialty that takes care of heart disease. You know, one of the things Dr. Vashit and I uh, share is uh, we both worked at the Bronx Lebanon Hospital, uh, and uh, there are two divisions. There was the concourse, Grand Concourse Division, which was uh, a very famous hospital, and the Fulton Division where I worked, but I was there uh, much earlier than Dr. Vashus in the 70s. And and I got to be honest with you, I remember then working as an orderly, and, you know, somebody had a heart attack. We had, we had nitroglycerin, and we'd put them to bed for three weeks. And so in the last 40 years, the field of cardiology may be one of the most changing fields in all of medicine. Um, because no one would ever do that now, sit somebody down for three weeks and just sit there and watch them. Again, we we treated strokes the same way in, in terms right. of that. Uh, but, they, yeah. You're absolutely right. In fact, uh, a little uh, throwback to history lesson, you know, as you might recall, President Eisenhower in 1955 had a heart attack, which was initially diagnosed as indigestion. And uh, that time there was very crude testing available in terms of the diagnostics uh, or even the treatment, and he was recommended prolonged bed rest, something which we would not do today. Um, and he was in the hospital for several weeks uh, and eventually developed complications, uh, including a ventricular aneurysm and stroke and had subsequently uh, several other heart attacks. Um, but today, um, that paradigm shift, uh, as you pointed out, is amazing uh, in terms of uh, most of our low to intermediate risk patients who present with a heart attack uh, often get discharged if they have an uncomplicated course in the hospital within two to three days now. So let's look at this a little bit. So lately in the news, Bernie Sanders is out on an energetic 78-year-old, is out there running for president and has a cardiac event, shall we say, uh, because there's a difference between 
because he needed a stent doesn't necessarily mean he had a heart attack. Can you explain that implication from that standpoint and what it means to all of us? So coronary disease uh, can be uh, looked upon as two different uh, variations. One is uh, as we have risk factors and we grow older, uh, risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, hypercholesterolemia, which means high cholesterol, tobacco use, genetics can come together and uh, predispose an individual to forming atherosclerotic plaques, which means blockages in their arteries. And they may feel more fatigued, they may feel more short of breath, may even develop chest discomfort when they walk. Um, and the other end of the spectrum is sudden onset of symptoms which would indicate a heart attack. Um, and so in terms of coronary disease, there could be a stable progression of disease uh, which manifests with certain set of symptoms, and then there could be an acute presentation Uh with what we little we know from uh, Senator Sanders' history and stories that he was feeling fatigued and he was ignoring some of those symptoms, uh, and the latest uh, iteration of his uh, of his uh, medical condition that we know was that he actually did suffer a heart attack. What we do not know because those records haven't been released is how massive this process was, and that ultimately decides the outcome of uh, what uh, what would be his overall prognosis. It could be if it was just marginal damage versus if it was a massive damage. Now, all indicators, he was discharged within 48 to 72 hours, and he appears to be doing well. But that's the broad spectrum of atherosclerotic disease in terms of patients who just have angina versus who present to the hospital uh, in, with, with a heart attack. What's interesting from my standpoint is I have patients all the time that say, I got a coronary stent, and I can't tell you how good I feel. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing, and um, most of the patients would actually tell you that they had subconsciously uh, started to do less and less just because they were getting symptomatic, and even walking to just walking the dog would become a little difficult, and then they would just become more sedentary, and they might have symptoms, and this is something that I would do want to stress, that um, our usual Teaching has been, well, patients might feel an elephant sitting on their chest or they might just have chest pain is not necessarily true. Uh, there are variations of symptoms uh, that may indicate uh, an underlying condition. Um, could be uh, choking sensation, could be arm numbness and arm pain, uh, could be just shortness of breath and fatigue. Um, so if you think that something ain't right, it's best to get it investigated, especially if you have risk factors. Now, when we restore flow in the coronary arteries with a stent, oftentimes the heart function improves if, uh, if that was low. And patients actually, their dyspnea gets better and they start to feel better. And fatigue uh, is one of the things that they'll universally tell us that, you know, it's gotten a lot better. And they never really realized how much they'd, they'd stop doing when they, were, uh, when they hadn't had the stent. Can you explain first... What is a stent so that everyone knows that and what we're talking about, although I, I think people fairly get a grasp of that. And the difference and why you would do a stent versus an open procedure, the old coronary artery bypass graft. I say old. I mean, it's still done. But what would what would be the difference to a patient? So the uh, percutaneous coronary intervention encompasses doing balloon angioplasties and stents. And this was in the 70s that we would just open up the arteries with just balloon, also called as plain old balloon angioplasty. 
And what we learned since then is that when we did that, the uh, the artery would still recoil or there would still be residual stenosis. So the next advancement was development of a metal scaffolding. So just think of it simplistically is a little metal scaffold on which is crimped onto a balloon. We deliver it to the artery um, and we then deploy the balloon and the stent expands and keeps the artery open. And the initial stents were very difficult to place. They were much larger caliber catheters that were required and the complication rates were higher. Um, we had a lot of stents that would actually uh, re nose, which means they would develop re-narrowing. And in the last few years, we've developed drug-looting stents, which are really the state of the art with very little re rate. And so that's the mechanism by which the stents keep the arteries open. And in the, in, in the case of our acute heart attack, after we've cleared the artery, the stent actually keeps the uh, the vessel open and restores flow to the myocardium or the heart muscle. It, I just wanted to ask you a question. A quick question is, how do they get the stent in? Now, used to be that you'd go in through the groin, um, but uh, many people are using the radial artery now. And I noticed when Bernie Sanders was coming out of the hospital, he was favoring his left arm. Would that be the vessel of choice when doing an angioplasty, going through the radial artery as opposed to the femoral? That's that's a great question. Uh, historically, you're absolutely right. We used to go into the groin arteries or the femoral arteries. And historically, in Asia and in Europe, they've been doing uh, catheterization to the radial arteries. It is a learning curve, and but it has caught on in the United States. And the risks of bleeding with the radial artery and the complication rates are lower. So we are now doing more more and more of these procedures for the radial artery. And in some patients, uh, even ulnar artery, because some, sometimes the radial arteries are smaller, uh, we usually go into the right or the left radial artery depending on certain, in certain specific factors. Um, but the complication rates, as you pointed out, are actually lower with radial artery catheterization. I personally find that absolutely amazing in the, f- the fact that you can get a catheter in a radial artery and get to the heart. We're going to take a short break because I want to continue this line of questioning so we could talk a little bit about coronary artery bypass graft. When do you open the chest and start putting vessels in? We're chatting with my guest today, Dr. Asim Vashist. Dr. Vashist is the interim uh, Chief of Cardiology at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. The phone numbers here are 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today I have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Asim Vashist, and we're chatting about coronary artery disease, heart disease. And Asim, just before the break, we were talking about percutaneous procedures, interventional cardiology, putting in stents, but we still occasionally hear about people who have had bypasses, coronary artery bypass grafts. How often is that seen, and why would someone have that as opposed to a a percutaneous procedure? Uh, There are multiple reasons why we would still do coronary bypass grafting surgery, and um, there are certain factors like uh, blockages in certain locations in the arteries that are better suited for getting bypassed by a surgeon. 
If you have extensive coronary disease, which would require um, multiple stents, would probably be better served with a bypass surgery. If you have low heart function, if you have diabetes, um, so there are a multitude of reasons that uh, patients will st- still be considered for open heart surgery. Um, that field also has advanced tremendously over the past uh, few years uh, in terms of their outcomes. Um, most of the institutions will have a heart team meeting, which means the patients would uh, get an opinion from both an interventional cardiologist, their cardiologist, as well as a surgeon. And then the heart team meeting happens where a surgeon and an interventional cardiologist would sit down to discuss the pros and cons for a given patient to see if they would be better served with uh, open heart surgery versus a PCI. Uh, This still remains an evolving field, and um, I think uh, you would likely see if I had a crystal ball that uh, more and more of these lesions are going to be dealt with percutaneous coronary intervention. But that is by no means to say that uh, open heart surgery is is not an important field. We also uh, require um, our surgical colleagues to help us sometimes when there are complications with uh, percutaneous coronary intervention. So there still is a, a huge need for bypass surgeons uh, in our field. How many, pe- how many people have angioplasty done now? I mean, what, what are the numbers like? Because we hear about it all the time. Uh, the number of patients uh, uh, in terms in the United States and world over are, are in, in almost a million uh, uh, patients would have some sort of a procedure or evaluation in terms of coronary geography or PCIs. Um, as you know, coronary disease, uh, heart disease and coronary disease in particular are the number one uh, killers. Um, and that is a sobering statistic because we think about, uh, not a takeaway from cancer deaths, but still... Um, death from coronary disease still remains the number one kill, killer um, in terms of the morbidity and mortality. Um, so the field has exponentially grown, um, and as we have evolved, there were lesions and there were blockages that we couldn't deal with in, in the cath lab, and we would send them often to bypass surgeries. Uh, we now have uh, new tools, uh, newer catheters, newer stents, uh, we have the ability to actually debulk some of these lesions, which basically means if they are difficult to open up with a balloon because they have a lot of calcium, they're hardened arteries, we can actually, just like a roto-rooter, we can actually debulk and scrape off the calcium. Uh, and this is a diamond burr that That's spins amazing. in the artery. Um, we have uh, now uh, the newer uh, technological advance that is uh, being studied is just like lithotripsy for renal arteries, we can also do something similar in the coronary arteries to make the arteries more pliable so that we can then open them up with a balloon and stent. So the field remains uh, in, in, in continuous motion, and I think every year you will see and hear uh, more and more that we can do in the cath lab. Let's take a step back. The warning signs of somebody having, you mentioned already, you know, feeling heavy like somebody sitting on your chest or, but what, what are the things people need to look out for? Because people are still ignoring these, right? Especially women. So let's chat a little bit about that. You're absolutely right. Uh, Most of the teaching, and I think even in medical school and in fellowships and in training, you know, we are used to thinking about chest pain, heaviness in their chest, and, you know, the classic description of an elephant sitting on the chest um, are the classic descriptions, but they are not necessarily, uh, they don't necessarily capture everyone who's having a heart attack or even a cardiac condition. And um, 
I would urge the listeners to have a lower threshold if they feel that they are more short of breath than usual, if they are having pain in their arm or the choking sensation uh, or jaw pain, uh, anything that doesn't really feel right. Especially in women, they may not have the classic features of a heart attack and may be suffering from critical blockages in the arteries. I have to say that as a fraternity in medicine, the uh, the cardiologists, the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association and all the hospitals uh, really did a good job in, time, in terms of uh, honing their skills and tightening up every little thing that we could do in terms of transporting these patients rapidly to a hospital that's capable of doing an angioplasty, making protocols uh, for rapid evaluation. Um, there are blood tests that can diagnose heart attack now in minutes, um, EKGs and echocardiogram, and uh, taking the patients to the cardiac catheterization laboratory in an expedient way. Uh, we also have metrics that are publicly reported, like door-to-balloon time, which means how quickly can a patient come to the to the hospital and their arteries be opened up. And these are publicly reported metrics, um, and the goal is to do it in less than 90 minutes. And by and large, for example, at St. Francis Hospital, our numbers are, are way lower than even 90 minutes. Um, and those are some of the advances that we've made. I think the Achilles heel continues to remain where patients might ignore their symptoms. So we have pushed the clock um, from door to balloon to actually first medical contact. So the ambulance picks up somebody at home with symptoms which may be consistent with a heart attack. We want to actually push the envelope and say even we want to reduce that time to 90 minutes. But I think we continuously still see patients who may have had symptoms for hours or even days sometimes. And I think that continues to remain one of the uh, one of the things that we need to do better at in terms of educating our, our patients, uh, our patient population in terms of recognizing those symptoms early and also being clued in that some of these symptoms might not be the typical symptoms that your friends might have had or your your family members might have had. And especially if you have risk factors like diabetes or smoking or family history, then to have a low threshold to speak to your primary care doctors, call 911 uh, or seek urgent uh, attention, urgent care, uh, and reach a hospital that's capable of treating heart attacks. Do you still use clot-busting drugs? I mean, the TPA, I mean, for a while, that was it. Somebody came in, right away they were getting TPA, as we do for stroke now. Uh, Is that still the case, or are you getting people to the cath lab sooner? That's a great question. Um, Connecticut, we are blessed uh, that we have a high density of hospitals that are capable of doing percutaneous coronary intervention. And when feasible, uh, percutaneous coronary intervention actually has several advantages over uh, TP or clot-busting medications, as you pointed out. However, uh, the vast majority or uh, significant number of hospitals in the United States, especially if you are in far-flung areas, uh, you may not be able to reach a hospital that is capable of doing PCI. And the recommendation by the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, still remains uh, in those patients to actually uh, administer the clot-busting medications if you cannot open up the artery uh, in in a in an expedient fashion. So there still is a role, um, but it's 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 uh, diminishing fast. Let's talk about women in heart disease. You know, we we have go red for women in uh, I think the month of February and. It, why do women under-recognize and under-report their symptoms of coronary artery disease? 
And what are the particular risk factors? We talked a little bit about coronary dissection. Can we talk a little bit about those things? Why do they underreport? And what is a coronary dissection? I'm glad you brought up uh, coronary artery dissection. And uh, the, uh, the, the condition is spontaneous coronary artery dissection. Our acronym is SCAD, and we call it SCAD. And as the name implies, it's spontaneous, uh, and it's a dissection of the coronary artery. And this is one of the fields in interventional cardiology that has rapidly evolved. In fact, our understanding of this condition has changed over the last one to two years. Um, and up to 35% of women less than age of 50 who present with an acute coronary syndrome or a heart attack may actually have SCAD. Uh, so to put it in perspective, when patients present with a heart attack, we always think of it as a a plaque, a lipid plaque or a cholesterol plaque that's ruptured and caused the artery to uh, result in a heart attack. But in women uh, who may or may not have risk factors for heart disease, the another mechanism that's being recognized is that the arteries uh, have a little tear, and then that perpetuates the cycle of uh, platelets and a clot formation resulting in detriment and flow in the arteries. So their presentation in the field uh, remains similar. They might have chest discomfort. They might have atypical symptoms, as we talked about. And their EKGs, when they come to the hospital, may actually look just like as if they are having a complete blockage of the artery. And um, up to 40% of patients who are pregnant may actually have SCAD as the underlying etiology. And these are vastly different than the conventional um, atherosclerotic process uh, that we talk about or that we, uh, that we think about. There are significant implications in how we treat these patients now uh, as compared to the traditional heart attack patients. Um, there are significant differences in how we manage them after their discharge to prevent recurrence of this condition and also counseling these patients. Um, for example, um, the most common risk factors in these patients is fibromuscular dysplasia, um, patients' uh, pregnancy, hormonal therapy um, are all risk factors that predispose uh, these patients for SCAD. They're usually in their 50s, um, and, it's, uh, and as we talked about, SCAD afflicts women more than men by a vast, uh, by a vast number. The precipitating factors usually are intense physical activity, like weightlifting or Valsalva kind of maneuvers, labor and delivery, um, and sometimes intense uh, emotional uh, uh, episodes could also precipitate them. Rarely are they used with. Rarely are they uh, correlate with corticosteroid use or other conditions like autoimmune diseases or Marfan's uh, syndrome. We're going to take a short break. Uh, because we want to get back and talk a little bit more about coronary artery disease and heart disease in general. And really, in the next segment, we want to talk about the future. What are the things we're going to be hearing about in this exciting field? You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds in our final segment with Dr. Asim. Vashist. Dr. Vashist is the interim chief of cardiology at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, but he's director of the Interventional Cardiology Program. Uh, Asim, what is an interventional cardiology program? Because when, when we use the term program, it's usually an organized approach to a project. So can you talk a little bit about the program at St. Francis? 
Absolutely. Um, so interventional cardiology program encompasses um, the uh, cardiologists that deal with balloons and stents in the cath lab, but also do uh, other important procedures like ASD and PFO closures, which are uh, are recognized now uh, as sometimes as the etiologies of stroke uh, in patients. Um, we have also evolved in a field where we can now perform uh, aortic valve replacements by percutaneous means rather than having the uh, standard old-fashioned ways of having an open-heart surgery and replacing the valve. And that actually precluded a lot of the patients with multiple comorbidities. Patients who were older with uh, severe lung disease would not be candidates for open-heart surgery, and we can now deliver um, aortic valves through the femoral artery or the axillary artery. And so, and these the length of stay for these patients in the hospital is, you know, anywhere up to one to two or three days. Um, and so the interventional program used to just be a balloon and stent program, but this is now evolved into multiple other structural interventions, uh, including mitral valve you know, uh, repairs. And now there are also trials that are, un are underway in terms of mitral valve replacements. So interventional cardiology program has grown in most institutions, and certainly it has in at St. Francis Hospital in terms of taking care of these very sick uh, patients. And as I mentioned, we work very collaboratively and closely with our CD surgical colleagues, and they're a part of our program because when we do uh, TAVRs or, or uh, aortic valve replacements percutaneously, uh, it is still a hard team approach where the surgeons actually are in the uh, hybrid OR or in the cath lab doing them together. And so the interventional team is not just interventional cardiologists anymore. It's it's a hybrid team that, uh, that involves the uh, intracardiac uh, echocardiographers, um, the surgeons and the interventional cardiologists. So it's, it's evolved into a field where we can now take care of the more complex patients as a team effort. In terms of medication, well, I mean, we hear a lot about regenerative medicine, right? And we hear about it in orthopedics. We hear it in, in every field. Now, someone's telling me we're going to be able to start growing valves. Is that true? There are uh, there are very bench uh, work that's going on. It hasn't really reached mainstream, sure. and I have to admit that you know, uh, in other fields of medicine, it has has more success in press. While I was down at Yale, we were actually working on one of those projects. It's it's still evolving, but we know we're close to it being mainstream. Uh, because I, I I saw a patient who said he's in an experimental program at Yale. And they're using some type of medication to repair his valve so they don't have to replace it. I, I didn't quite understand the way he was explaining it, but it made me think of regenerative medicine uh, more than anything. Yeah, it's, it's as I said, it was an evolving field. And uh, I think we are still quite a few years away from that becoming mainstream, at least in cardiology, uh, especially as it pertains to valvular heart disease. Um, uh, are we still using a lot of blood thinners in patients? So uh, we use, um, and that's, uh, that's a very good question because a lot of times physicians uh, and even patients use the term loosely, blood thinners. So we do have two separate categories. One is the antiplatelets. After you get a stent, sure. you get an aspirin, which some people mislabel as a blood thinner. It really is an antiplatelet drug. And one of the successes we've had in terms of taking care of these patients post-stent is that we now have pretty 
potent antiplatelet agents and some of the patients uh, or listeners may recognize drugs like Berlenta and Effient that they are on which and Plavix, which weren't available uh, many years back. The other category which uh, I think you're alluding to are the novel anticoagulants, um, so patients who have atrial fibrillation and are at a risk for stroke. Um, and uh, heretofore, we only had Coumadin, which is a difficult drug to take and monitor. But over the past few years, we now have uh, newer drugs called NOAX or DOAX, which are novel oral anticoagulant drugs that do not require uh, monitoring of their blood uh, INRs. And they are shown to be equally effective with lesser side effects. And that is a, that's a definitely an evolution in terms of taking care of these patients, um, both as, as uh, decreasing the risk factors for stroke, but also making it easier for them to take. It's a, it's a standard dose, um, and we don't need to monitor their INRs regularly. No, absolutely. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your time, and thank you for everything you do for patients at St. Francis. If, if you'd like to get in touch with Dr. Vashas, the, the phone number over at St. Francis Hospital Medical Center is 860-714-4019. Um, and if you have questions uh, for him, you can always get to me through info at alessimd.com. I want to thank our studio producer today. Mikey Olko has been on the board. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for healthy rounds. Uh, next week, we're going to be going with the best of, um, since I will be on the road in Austin, Texas, addressing the American Academy of Neuromuscular and Electrodiagnostic Medicine. That's a real mouthful, uh, but a great field and a great group of young physicians. Healthy Rounds podcast, you could always get that by just downloading at iTunes at wherever you get your podcasts. Next up on WT is going to be Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives. You could do that today by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.